Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Have you ever sat and thought about the horrible things that have been promoted and justified using the Bible? I have. Quite a bit, actually. Manifest destiny and the egregious crimes against indigenous people, chattel slavery, the Holocaust, the Crusades, the Inquisition, violence against gay people, misogyny, child abuse, the list could go on. As someone who uses the adjective biblical quite a bit, I'm sobered and sickened by all the things that professing Christians have called biblical that were pure evil in its most heinous forms. The question that haunts me is this, what prevents me from doing the same? This is a question that should haunt us all, and it's a question that demands a good answer. I believe a sound hermeneutical method is that answer. In his book, Wisdom for Faithful Reading, John Walton outlines three essential commitments that undergird sound Bible interpretation, the kind of interpretation that guards us from manipulating the Bible to suit our own selfish and potentially evil agendas. The first essential commitment is accountability. He writes, First and most importantly, readers of Scripture are accountable to God, because we want to discern the message he intended to give, not our own message superimposed on his. Now, I have a hunch that every racist, misogynist, homophobic Bible thumper would shout a hearty amen to that. No problems there. But Walton keeps going. But there is another link in the chain. God chose to use human instruments, including those who passed on the oral tradition, authors, editors, and compilers, through whom to communicate his message. God vested his authority in these human instruments, and therefore, since we wish to be accountable to God, we must be accountable to them. If we believe their message was given and guided by God, our first line of accountability is to understand what those authors intended to communicate to their immediate audience. To turn that around, if the author cannot be shown to have a particular point in his message, then we should not have it in our interpretation. We are accountable to the author more than to our modern communities or traditions, end quote. What Walton is saying here is that being accountable to God and discerning the message he intended to give means taking the intent of the human originators of the Bible seriously. That means careful study of both their words and their cultural and historical context with a relentless commitment to do our best to not think like a post-enlightenment modern American. When we interpret the Old Testament, we've got to think like an ancient Israelite. As Walton puts it, we must stay tethered to the author's literary intentions. We must assume that the human author is a competent, effective communicator, and that we can hear and receive the message he intends. His message 
and God's message are one in the same. We are accountable to both. The second commitment of sound Bible interpretation is consistency. Walton doesn't go easy on us here. I'm quoting from the book again. Once we adopt the author's literary intention as the focus of our accountability, we must consistently and mercilessly engage in purging our interpretation of anything that cannot be defended as part of his intention, end quote. Walton says this is arguably the most important statement in his book. Now, the examples he gives are probably going to be hard for you to hear. I know this because they were hard for me to read. Are you ready? Here's Walton again. For example, if there is no indication that the author would have been aware of a possible connection between Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac and the crucifixion of Jesus, then consistency and accountability demand that we not make that part of our interpretation of Genesis. If the Old Testament authors show no awareness of the idea that the serpent is Satan, which by the way, they do not, consistency and accountability demand that we not make that part of our interpretation of the Old Testament. Whatever connection the New Testament author makes between the serpent and Satan would become part of our interpretation of the New Testament texts, not superimposed back onto the Old Testament, end quote. All right, you guys, that paragraph was uncomfortable because it made me realize that I've never studied an Old Testament passage purely on its own terms without immediately jumping to its connection with the New Testament. I've read the Jesus Storybook Bible to my kids dozens of times, and it's a good example of how I instinctively, without even realizing it, interpret the Old Testament. Aren't we supposed to see Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and and the whole gospel story on every page of the Bible? Well, I don't think Walton is discouraging us from making those connections entirely. In fact, I know he's not. He's discouraging us from making them too quickly. If being accountable to God means being accountable to the author he used to write the passage we're seeking to interpret, and if we're committed to consistency in our pursuit of the author's intent, then our first priority is listening to the text as it stands, all by itself, without importing later revelation. Once we've accomplished a thorough contextual reading, then, and only then, should we move on to a reading that incorporates the rest of the Bible. Scholars call this a canonical reading because it accounts for the entire canon of Scripture. If we jump to the canonical reading too fast, We disrupt our accountability to the author's intended message, to his original audience, and consequently risk distorting the meaning of the passage. This kind of consistency is another way to safeguard ourselves from manipulating the text to suit our own agendas. The third essential commitment of a sound hermeneutical method, according to Walton, is maintaining controls. 
Now, all of us need to admit that interpreting the Bible is never black and white. It is inherently subjective. That's why there are so many conflicting interpretations, even among those who have a high view of biblical authority. It's also why it's a whole lot better to speak of pursuing a faithful interpretation rather than a right interpretation. We don't have access to the original authors of the Bible. We can't interview them and ask questions about exactly what they intended to communicate or the specific circumstances behind their words. Thankfully, they give us a lot of clues. Literary analysis and historical reconstruction can result in a high degree of clarity in most cases, but absolute certainty is rarely, if ever, attainable, making the Bible highly vulnerable to erroneous interpretations. This is why maintaining controls is so important. It prevents hermeneutics from being more subjective than it already is. We need a set of interpretive rules that we always follow no matter what, even if it leads to a conclusion that we don't particularly like. Now, some may fear that adhering to such rules restrains the Bible, but Walton argues that controls are put in place to restrain ourselves. They can give us confidence that we're not just making stuff up or forcing the Bible to say what we want it to say. Now that, of course, begs the question, what are those rules? What are those controls that we are to apply to the interpretive process? Well, that's what the rest of Walton's book is about, and I'm really looking forward to exploring it with you. Next week, we'll look at four fundamental concepts for interpretation. If you have the book and want to read ahead, these are on pages 8 through 16. Now, I know I'm spending a ridiculous amount of time in the introduction, but this stuff feels really important. We'll pick up the pace when we get into the main body of the book. Well, that's the plan anyway. Maybe we will. No promises. I have never been known for my speed and efficiency. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you ever want these episodes in print form, you can find the transcripts on my Substack. That's aprilsweers.substack.com. There is an E at the end of April. Substack is spelled S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K. I share other stuff there as well. If you subscribe, all those goodies will be sent directly to your inbox so you don't have to do any work at all to find them. If you upgrade to a $5 a month paid subscription, you'll get some fun bonus content and you'll help keep this thing going, which would be a huge blessing. Paid subscriptions can be canceled anytime. I'll put a link for that in the show notes. Well, that's it for today. I'll see you guys right back here next week. Bye friends. Bye friends.